0: Is something stealing the joy that you're supposed to be getting from your marriage? Or just the joy that you're supposed to be getting from life from you? Well, that's what we're talking about this month on tolovehonorandvacuum.com, and that's what we're going to tackle today on the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. I'm Sheila Gregoire, and I am so glad that you've joined me. As we're starting out today, I want to tell you about something that happened to me last month when we were in Costa Rica. My husband and I traveled down there. He loves nature. I love nature. We took some awesome hikes, saw some awesome animals and birds. It was great. But one of the things that really blew me away was we were walking by our resort, and there was this huge beautiful plant with all of these very, very familiar red flowers. And I looked at this thing and I realized that is a poinsettia, like an actual poinsettia. Up here in Canada, we get these little spindly things that they sell in grocery stores around the beginning of December. And by the time Christmas rolls around, it's lost all its leaves because you overwater it or it gets too dry. They're just so picky. But here was this poinsettia in Costa Rica, and it was as tall as I was, and it was just thriving. And I thought to myself, it's such a great picture of what I want to talk about in January, because I really believe that a lot of us are living lives and having marriages that very much resemble those spindly poinsettias, like Maybe they're pretty, they've got a flower or two, you can enjoy it, but it's just not what you were meant for. And that's because we just don't have the right environment. We don't have the right conditions that help you to thrive. I was talking last week about how you just need to get healthy. And that's something that we all know, and yet we all shy away from it. And a lot of the reason I think is because we just don't like having to work. You know, and getting healthy, it's hard work. <laughs> and it's difficult to do things that you just don't particularly find fun. But health isn't the only thing that can steal our joy. We can also just miss out on the joy of relationships and miss out on how much fun we can have with our spouse and how close we can feel with our spouse. Because we let little things get in the way and we stop investing in what really matters. I mean, why is that point side of plant doing so well? Because it's got ideal conditions. It's got the rain it needs, it has the heat it needs, it has the nutrients it needs. And so it thrives. And your marriage needs stuff too. So do your kids. And yet When you look at how you're spending your life, are you actually investing in the right thing? And so I want to take a look today at time wasters we were talking on the blog about video games, which is so important. <laughs> I know that for many people, video games steal your marriage. But you know, often when we're talking about video games, it's easy to get mad at the men in our lives. There's not a lot of women who have huge issues with video games, we tend to have issues with other things. And so let's let's broaden the horizon today on the podcast, we're not going to point fingers at our husbands, we're going to look at the whole picture and see, you know, what am I doing that's perhaps is robbing my marriage of joy. So let's talk about it. What about Netflix? Is Netflix a waste of time? <laughs> what about all the time we spend on social media? I think the best way to explain this is to tell you a story. Okay, so let's let's travel back to 1996 when Rebecca, who's my oldest, was just a year old. I used to leave the TV on all during the day uh, just to have some noise in the background. And uh, because of that, I ended up watching soap operas. I don't even know if they still have soap operas, do they? I don't know, but (laughs) I would watch these soap operas from one to four every afternoon because I was tired and I just wanted an escape. You know, it was hard work being alone with my baby all the time. Keith was working about 100 hours a week in his residency program in pediatrics, and I was just often lonely. And so I found myself falling into television more and more. Then one day I picked up Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People at a Garage Sale. And I read it and it totally changed my life. And it's, it's informed so much of what I write on the blog too. Um, But specifically, it was his discussion about beginning with the end in mind and putting first things first. In other words, know where you're heading, and then make sure that you do the things that are necessary to get you there before you do anything else kind of ties in with what we were talking about last week. Like you gotta actually work at stuff. You know, there are things that do need to get done. And then when we don't do those things, we really do hurt ourselves. He used a graphic to illustrate this. And it's hard to do this in a podcast. so I'm just going to try to explain it. What he did was he said, you can take a look at your life, and you can divide it into four quadrants. And those four quadrants are, are divided based on whether things are important or whether things are urgent. So you have quadrant one, which are things that are both important and urgent, you know, things like uh, you're going into labor, okay, that's pretty important. It's also urgent. Um, Or maybe your teenage son runs away from home, or uh, you have a big 50th anniversary party for your parents, or your daughter's in a ballet performance, you know, those are important and urgent things. Then quadrant two would be things that are important But they're not urgent. There's nothing actually making you do them. That would be spending time with God, you know, reading your Bible, doing exercise. Uh, It would mean having a date night with your spouse, Um, taking time just to play and interact with your kids, actually talk to them, having friends over for dinner all of those kinds of things. Then there are things that are urgent, but they're not important. And a lot of us spend a lot of time here. You know, when the ding goes off on your phone, notifying you that you have another Facebook message, or uh, that you have another text, conversations with toxic people, you know, those things are urgent, but they're not necessarily important, or other people's preventable crises. You know, how much time do you spend talking to friends or family members who are doing the same thing over and over again, right? It might seem urgent, but you're not actually helping anything. And then of course, and this is really what I want to talk about today, is all there's all those things that aren't urgent, and also aren't important time wasters, you know, like video games, most social media, most Netflix, you know, TV and movies, phone games, etc. So let's dissect these a little bit further. If you look at things that are important and urgent, they demand your attention rightly. But sometimes these things aren't happy things like going into labor or a kid being in a pageant. Sometimes they're actual crises, which could be avoidable. But when they crop up, you absolutely have to address them. You discover your spouse is having an affair. Uh, you suffer a nervous breakdown. Now, sometimes nervous breakdowns really are purely chemical. But other times it's because we've let ourselves get too stressed. Uh, or perhaps we've put up with something for far too long that we shouldn't have put up with. You know, you totter on bankruptcy. Sometimes it's even little things like running out of clean dishes or clean underwear because you haven't done any housework. (laughs) You know, these are fires in your life that need to be put out. But things that are important but aren't urgent they don't demand your attention. There is nothing that is going to make you exercise that's going to make you sit down and read your Bible that's going to make you um, have those conversations with your spouse. There are things that only get done when you are absolutely intentional about it. And here's the key thing. When you do not spend time on these things, then those fires in your life they pop up a lot more frequently. If you want to avoid fires in your life, you must spend time on things that are important, but not urgent. The only way to spend more time there is to get your time from some other quadrant. And often the time that we need to recover is in those two quadrants of things that are either urgent, but aren't important, or things that aren't urgent and aren't important. So let me show you what the difference might be things that are urgent, but aren't important. Okay, so you're having a deep conversation with your husband and the phone rings. So what do you do? If you're like most people, you would answer the phone. But what was actually more important? Or maybe you're on a date night with your husband and the phone dings with a new text. Do you ignore the text? Or do you check it? (laughs) Or maybe your friend who has been in constant crisis for the last two years because she overspends and she drinks too much and she keeps dating jerks. She calls you when you're just on the way out the door to an important volunteer activity and she's in tears. Do you listen to her? Or do you tell her that you need to go? You know, in all of those cases, there's something which seems to be impeding on our time right now that demands our attention. But it really is okay to say no to those things because you've realized there's other things that are more important. And then there's those things that are not urgent and are also not important. Things that really don't have a lot of redeeming value. And this is where many, many of us spend most of our time. Now, I'm not saying, okay, that all hobbies or all movies fall into this category. I love knitting. I think knitting helps me rejuvenate. You know, when I knit for like 45 minutes a day, I actually feel better and more energized watching some movies together can bond you as a family, Uh, doing productive hobbies, uh, can certainly be important. Um, Sometimes getting on Facebook helps you to keep in contact with nieces and nephews or with sisters that live on the other side of the continent. So I'm not saying all of these things, you shouldn't do them at all. I'm just saying, how often do you end up spending an evening on a screen and you don't know where the time went? And at the end of it, you feel even more tired than you did before when we feel like we need to relax, we often turn to time wasters. But the key thing about time wasters is that they don't rejuvenate you because they don't tend to feed your soul. They might in small doses, and they might provide you with something that you actually really need. Like we were talking about some elements of video games in our in the blog yesterday. But if they don't give you what you need to rejuvenate, you're only going to feel like you need to waste even more time, like you're even more exhausted, and you're not going to get the important things done that would feed your soul and that would make you feel better. I really think a lot of us are not spending our time well. And it's probably because we do feel like we need to escape. You know, we lead lives that are exhausting, and they're not always fulfilling, and our lives are often in chaos, and you just want that chance to forget. But if your basic problem is that your life isn't fulfilling, or, you know, that you're chronically lonely, or you're having marriage issues, and you find your marriage stressful, so it's easier to go escape, well, those things are not going to get better when you escape. And until you really address those things, you're still going to feel lousy. You know, after reading Stephen Covey's book, I actually quit TV cold turkey. I just stopped. I didn't want to waste my life. And what I found for the first time in years is that I got bored. And when I got bored, I got energetic. And so I started something new. I started magazine writing. I researched how to get published. By 1999, I was selling magazine articles. By 2003, I had my first book published. And in 2008, I started this blog, you know, the rest of the story, I firmly believe that none of that would have happened if I had kept watching so much television. And that's why when people say to me, well, there's nothing wrong with video games, or there's nothing wrong with watching Netflix, sometimes I have to take a pause. It's not that it's wrong. It's that too much of it may be stopping you from doing what is best. Uh, You know, Hebrews 12, one to two says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And what I love about those verses is is that it says that we're supposed to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. You see, sometimes the things that are keeping us from the best in life aren't necessarily sin. They're just hindering us, everything that hinders. And so let me ask you this. What would happen in your marriage if you stopped so many time wasters and just let yourself get bored for a change? (laughs) You know, maybe you guys would decide, hey, every Monday night, let's pull out some board games and spend some time together. Maybe you would say, you know, why don't we run the youth group? Or why don't we volunteer at the youth group at church? It would be great to breathe into the lives of some teenagers. Or maybe you'll say, why don't we take this next month and get the garage cleaned out? Because when when your life is not organized, that's a huge psychological weight on you too. <laughs> you know, But if you can take care of a lot of these time wasters, you'll end up spending your life in things that actually are important. You'll deal with more of the things that you're running away from And you'll find that your life is a lot more fulfilling and you won't have as many fires. This week as you're going about your life, please picture that poinsettia. I've got the picture on the podcast page and in this blog post. But it's this huge poinsettia plant that is just thriving because it's in the right environment. And think to yourself, are you actually putting your marriage in the right environment? Or are you becoming that spindly little poinsettia that's losing all of its leaves? keep that thought in your head. Because I really believe that God wants you to live a big life. He wants you to have a passionate marriage. But that isn't going to happen until you start spending your energy on things that are truly important. Our churches are filled with Christian pat answers about marriage. Something wrong? Pray about it. Is he watching porn? Have more sex. Is he not leading? Submit more. Pat Answers sometimes work, but not always. And God doesn't work in Pat Answers. He works in the messiness of life. Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage is my book where I get a little messy. Join me in my journey away from Pat Answers and towards healthy, authentic marriages. Nine Thoughts That Can Change Your Marriage, because your marriage should be great.
1: Hello and welcome to Millennial Marriage. I'm Rebecca Lindenbach, Sheila's daughter, and today it's actually going to be me and my husband instead of me and my mom. So this is Connor, my husband.
2: Hi, nice to meet you all.
1: Yeah, so we want to talk more about the post that you wrote this week, Connor, on video games and how video games can either take over a marriage or just be a fun hobby. Um, And so I thought we'd focus more on your side of things and your story. Because you gave a lot of really good practical tips in the post. And if this is a problem in your marriage, I do suggest checking out the post. But I want to focus more on... Yeah, the actual kind of person behind the post this time.
2: Yes. so right off the bat, my parents had some pretty strict rules about how much time I could spend in front of screens, which I think is a really great call when it comes to parenting. I got one hour of screen time combined between TV, computer, and video games. Uh, When I moved out to university, though, and had a bit more control over how I was spending my time, I noticed if I didn't have other pressing things that I was working on, that video game time would start to creep up to three, four, five hours. Uh, You know, I could spend a whole weekend just sitting there in front of the TV if I had nothing else going on.
1: Yeah, I remember that actually.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so when it was just me by myself, as long as I was taking care of the things that I needed to take care of, the amount that I was playing video games after that wasn't really creating too much of a problem for Mm me. But then, when I got married, and it was no longer just about me, but also about Rebecca. You know, I wasn't just looking after... Uh, making sure that the bills were getting paid, but I also needed to be spending time with my wife, that's where I started sometimes letting things slip between the cracks.
1: Yeah, exactly. I remember that a lot, especially, you know, a big thing that you did was starting League of Legends games at like 11 o'clock at night.
2: Yeah, so I would start these games that you're you're pretty much locked in for half an hour to 45 minutes, depending yeah. on how long the game goes, and you can't pause it because it's online with other people, and... That would really bother Rebecca when I wouldn't check with her to see if she had anything going on in the next bit. Because then if she decided she wanted to spend time with me or wanted to talk about something, she wouldn't be able to do that for 30-40 yeah, minutes and she wouldn't know how long it would be.
1: Or even just going to bed and not having you wake me up like an hour later mm-hmm. when you eventually came there. So. Yeah. There were, there were definitely some things in our early years of marriage that we had to kind of deal with when it came to video games. I mean, I say early years of marriage, but we're only going on to year four. So I guess we're still kind of in that. <laughs>
2: But, I mean, even in four years, we've managed to make a lot of progress.
1: Exactly. And I think that a lot of that progress really does come from us taking a minute and stepping back and putting ourselves in the other person's shoes when it comes to the kinds of problems that we are facing.
2: hmm One of the big things that really drew me to playing some of these games was that feeling of competence, that feeling of being really good at something and developing that skill. Yeah. And particularly in the first bit of our marriage... There were a lot of tasks around the house, like laundry and dishes, where Rebecca had a very particular way of doing them, and she was quite good at them. (laughs) But I often felt that if I tried to do them, if I tried to step up and do it for her, she'd appreciate it. But there'd be comments about how I should be doing it, as opposed to how I was doing it. Just to
1: be honest, I didn't really appreciate it, because you were doing it wrong.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And so, I didn't really feel all that competent working around the house and doing a lot of the chores. What?
1: You mean having an A-type personality walking behind you and talking over your shoulder everything you're doing wrong isn't making you feel competent and good about yourself?
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Doing the dishes isn't a job that requires a supervisor. Yeah, so in League of Legends, I really did get to feel that sense of competence and that sense of skill. But then the problem was, if I didn't let Rebecca know that I was thinking about playing a game, didn't allow her to plan around that she would end up feeling neglected
1: yeah like a lot of times i'd work hard and make dinner and then you'd sit down and start playing a game five minutes before dinner was done and so then okay well dinner's cold 40 minutes later you know Yeah. and these are the kinds of conversations that we had to have in the beginning stages and to be honest we would have gotten to a better place a lot faster if we had actually started to think about the other person from the get-go instead of just this is what i want and what i think is right versus this is what i want and what i think is right and honestly like i think a lot of people who are in marriages with video game issues like a lot of times there is honest immaturity and laziness and real character flaws but I think most of the time it's just that all of us are kind of inherently selfish beings who have a really really hard time thinking about what the other person's perspective is and I know that was kind of part of the problem for us you know like you always forgot to check with me because you're just not a very organized person to be completely honest it's fine
2: and I was pretty new to having someone else that I needed to ask about the things I was doing
1: exactly and I was really controlling and I wasn't very good at you know kind of letting go a little bit and if something wasn't done exactly my way it wasn't the end of the world and so I really took that out on you and it just kind of drove you even more towards these things that actually made you feel like you could do something
2: Mm -hmm. And for me, what I really needed to do was I needed to stop and consider Rebecca's needs. I needed to realize because of her organized personality, she does like to be able to plan things in advance to know what's happening. And that's not a flaw on her part. That's a difference between the way that she and I operate. But it's part of what I love about her and part of why we work so well as a team and as a Mm -hmm. marriage. But we work even better when I meet her halfway.
1: And when I meet you halfway too, right? Mm-hmm. Like I really did have to change how I was talking to you, especially about housework stuff. And honestly, even just that, I think made a big difference. And then finding some boundaries that allowed my needs for our relationship to get met. And also they were your needs too. Yeah. It's just that you didn't realize it yet, right? Like mm-hmm. it's it's necessary for us to spend time together in the evenings. Yes. You know, like after school, not just to go off onto our different devices.
2: Yeah, I hear stories about marriages where the husband and wife barely, talk in the evening when Mm -hmm. he gets home from work and that just sounds really really sad to me
1: yeah exactly because that's not what marriage is supposed to be and I think that's the main thing right is try to figure out and talk about it figure out why are the video games more of a draw right now than anything else figure out what needs they're meeting and then figure out a way where you can together meet each other's real needs right because no one has a need to play video games Right? No one has a need to have complete control over everything. (laughs) You know, they're both preferences.
2: Video games are fun, but they're nothing more than a surrogate, really.
1: Exactly. And so now, you know, you have a pretty... I think you have a pretty healthy relationship with video games anyway. And so now, I think through all these conversations and kind of working through it, and giving each other the benefit of the doubt, too. That's a big one. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't see you as some immature, like, you know... 12-year-old who just wanted to play games all the time. I really didn't, and so I think that was a really big help, too. But I think that those conversations and all that work that's gone into has led to a pretty healthy place now, and I don't see any reason why other marriages couldn't get there, too, especially if there's not huge character issues.
2: Yeah. I mean, now around the house, there are particular things that I'm mainly responsible for, and those are my specialty. And Rebecca's done a great job of making me feel very competent in those things.
1: But also, I think it makes you feel invested in the household and the marriage more so than when you just retreat off into video games, right?
2: Absolutely. If a man feels like he won't be able to meet his wife's standards, he's going to have a real hard time getting invested in trying to.
1: Because honestly, it is a little bit like you're just Signing up for a self esteem blow every single time you try, right? And I think that's the thing I needed to learn. It wasn't that like I was responsible whenever you did something irresponsible with video games. It was more just like, okay, if I want a husband who wants to be fully invested and excited about being invested in like, you know, the little things like house cleaning, I've got to make it a semi not terrible experience for him, which I was quite frankly doing. So I, all I'm trying to say is that like this is two sided.
2: We absolutely don't want to make it seem like Rebecca was the only one or the main one who needed to change in order for us to develop a healthier relationship when it came to video games.
1: I really didn't do that much. Really, I just stopped critiquing and then you just did all the rest. I didn't stay critical and kind of negative towards him. I just embraced him completely and was like, Yeah, we can do this. This is awesome. You're wonderful. I love you so much. And I think that made the transition a bit easier.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. And now... At this point, we've come so far. Video games just haven't really been a topic for discussion in such a long time.
1: Exactly. And so we just hope this encourages you if you're going through any of this. Obviously, if there are major character flaws, it might be a good idea to get some sort of second opinion. But I really do think that for a lot of cases, it's more like me and Connor, where it's two well-meaning people who just feel a little bit lonely in their marriage who need to learn how to actually speak to each other in a way that the other person can hear. I hear you. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all we have today for Millennial Marriage. I hope you enjoyed this, and we'll see you next week. Ciao. Like this podcast? Then you'd love the blog. Join us at tolovehonorandvacuum.com, where Sheila blogs every weekday about marriage, faith, and, of course, sex. At the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum community, we deal with the messiness of life. We don't traffic and pat answers. Join us for thought-provoking posts, discussion starters, and great challenges to make your marriage and your love life
0: strong. Reader question time, and today's question is about what happens in a marriage when it's not actually him who's got the higher sex drive. I love the fact this woman sent in this question because I think a lot of you are going to be able to relate to this. So here we go. I was wondering if you maybe could give me some advice. I've been married for all of two and a half months. Both of us were virgins when we left for the honeymoon, and yeah, the honeymoon was awkward. But since then, we've recognized some things that are a little difficult for us to figure out. For instance, there seems to be a lot of role reversal. I am more visually stimulated than he is and can be interested at the drop of a hat, whereas for him, sex is almost entirely tied to how we are connected emotionally. It's actually a need for me. So I end up initiating about 98% of the time. I can only think of once when it was his idea. On your blog and others, it says that it could be a result of him being addicted to porn, but I know this isn't the case. He actually asked me to return some lingerie because he said it felt like I was being turned into an object and he would much more prefer it was just me. I also know that his hormone levels are fine. He told me that he enjoys sex once we get into it. It's just getting there that's difficult. So what is it? Is this normal? Do newlyweds typically only make love once or twice a week at most? (laughs) Okay, great question. One thing... Forget the idea of what's normal and what other people do because everybody's life is different and I think sometimes when we throw up, you know, what's normal, that can really uh, get problems for us because we start feeling dissatisfied. What's really important is your relationship. And I see some other really good things here. It sounds like he honestly isn't addicted to porn. Um, and I'm going to take your word for that. I think you know. And it also sounds like his hormone levels are good. And he does enjoy sex when you get into it. So that's all great. So what is this about the fact that you want sex at the drop of a hat, and he needs to feel close to you and emotionally connected? Does that mean there's something wrong? No, it really doesn't. You know, in any population, sex drives and libido, they're like, bell curves. So you need to picture like a bell shaped curve on a graph. So there's, there's on on either end of the bell, it's really, really low down and long. And at the top, it's very, very high. And most people tend to be in the middle. In that middle section um, but there's a lot of people in either end and it could simply be that you are on the higher libido end of the bell curve and he is on the lower libido end of the bell curve. Doesn't mean that either of you have something actually wrong with you like you're it's not like you're not a real woman and it's not like he's not a real man it's just that naturally you're on different ends of the bell curve and so it's going to take some adjusting and you are going to need to communicate about this. And communication is the number one thing for so many issues. You just need to be able to talk about it. I know it can feel weird, especially when you're just getting used to things like, is this the way it's supposed to be? But I think if you can talk about it, you can get over a lot of these things. So if we're going to talk about it, how does that conversation go? And I think what's important is that you each are able to say what it is that you need. So you may need, you know, to have sex several times. a week and to feel like he Finds you attractive, because <laughs> that's a big need that most women have. He may need to feel like you're really close and you're really emotionally connected. And so that may mean that, you know, you guys are going to do a lot of hobbies together, or you're going to go walking and talking more. Um, you're going to make sure that you spend time together because the more you spend time together, the more you're going to chat, the more you're going to laugh, the more you bring the tension level down in your marriage, and the easier it is to have these difficult conversations. But early in the marriage, it's so important to just lay these things out. What is it that we need? And it's perfectly okay to say to him, I really need you to initiate sex at least once every two weeks. Like you're the one who needs to... Take me in your arms and start kissing me. That's perfectly okay to say. And then ask him what he needs. But the key to this is to communicate. I think it's great that you're asking this question when you've only been married for two and a half months. A lot of people have these questions. They don't voice them with their spouse and then two years go by five years go by, and now there's so much baggage, it's a lot harder to deal with. When you can talk about this stuff early, then you can get on a much better trajectory. So again, there isn't necessarily anything wrong with either of you. You're just made differently. And so it means there's going to be a lot of communication needs. There's going to be a lot of need for compromise, but keep loving each other. It sounds like you really do have a gem there, and I wish you all the best in your marriage. Every week on the blog, I like to take a comment that's come in either on the blog or in social media that I found really interesting and that I think we really need to talk about more and do that. I want to talk about it more. So last week when we were talking about love and respect and all the problems that I had with that book, a ton of comments came in and this one came in just yesterday. And the woman says, I really struggled to see how you think that Emerson does not have Jesus center on his book. And she talks about how chapters 23 and 24 are very specifically about Jesus in lots of ways. And in other parts of the book, I remember him mentioning the Lord in various contexts. Also, he does have a lot of focus on scripture throughout the book. My theological understanding is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. So if the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write words, Christ was involved in that. And as you focus on scripture, you are focusing on Christ. Great comment, and I'm really glad she said this because this is something which I'm quite passionate about, and I want to make this very clear to everybody, which is that it is very, very easy to think that something is focusing on Jesus when people pepper Bible verses throughout it, but that does not mean that it is actually focusing on Jesus. So here's how I responded to it. Look, you can talk about Jesus a lot, and you can use a ton of scriptures, and it can all sound very good. But the question becomes, ultimately, what are we actually being told to do? Are we being told to submit to Jesus and to focus on him first? Or are we being told to do something very different? So in this particular example, but love and respect is not the only thing to do this, okay? But in love and respect, what the wife is being told to do is to allow the husband to make all the decisions, to say very little, even if he is drinking or straying, those are Emerson Egrich's words, not mine, and to allow him to be selfish if that's what he wants. Now, you can use scripture to make all of these points sound very Christian. You can talk about how we're supposed to be long-suffering. You can talk about how Sarah obeyed Abraham, and we should do the same thing, too. I have a post, by the way, that debunks our common understanding of that, and I'll put a link to that um, in the podcast description um, on my blog. You can talk about how Jesus suffered, and so that means that we should suffer. But that's taking verses. It's not looking at the whole of scripture. And often we look at individual verses Something can sound like that's exactly what we're supposed to do, but if you look at the total message of Scripture, it's clear that we're actually interpreting these verses in the wrong way. So for instance, you can make a case, looking at a few verses, that a wife should do what her husband says all the time. But when you look at the rest of scripture, it's clear that we should only ever be obeying God and Jesus should be our focus. Acts 5.28, Peter says we must obey God rather than man. Earlier in that exact same chapter, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, where God strikes Sapphira dead for going along with what Ananias said. And Peter actually says to her, how could you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You should not have followed your husband in this. 1 Timothy 2.5. There's no mediator between us and God. Your husband is not supposed to be your mediator. You see, we have to look at the whole of Scripture to interpret verses rather than taking individual verses and building a whole theology around them. And that's where things like love and respect go wrong. Instead of asking the wife to focus on Jesus and to look at what God's will is, and it's quite clear what God's will is from scripture. You know, God's will is that we would all be predestined to look like Christ. God's will is that the kingdom of heaven should come on earth. So the kingdom of God should be here. And what does that mean? That means that we are all living out life based on the fruits of the spirit, that we are all looking more and more like Christ. And so when advice tells you, to do something which would have the opposite effect of that, even if that advice is using Bible verses, that advice is actually not Jesus-centered. If advice is going to be Jesus-centered, then it should be things which are ultimately going to point us to how to look more like Christ and how to help other people around us look more like Christ. If advice ever tells you to do something which does not result in you pointing people to Christ or in you looking more like Christ, then that advice is faulty. And the chapters that she's referring to where Emerson does talk about Jesus, it's interesting because I see this common problem in a lot of marriage books, okay? Those are the chapters where he's saying that You know, sometimes you can follow all of this advice and your marriage doesn't get what you want it to be. But let's remember that our biggest reward is in heaven and let's live for heaven. And I find that a lot of marriage authors do that. They try to sell heaven to you because they know that what they're saying is not actually going to work out into a healthy marriage. So they just want you to stay in an unhealthy marriage because you have this promise that, well, one day you're going to get your reward in heaven. Jesus doesn't just want us to live for heaven. Jesus wants the kingdom of God to be more present on earth. And so what we tell people to do with, our, with their marriages should be increasing the kingdom of God on this earth. And when you enable sin, when you enable selfishness, like that famous wet towel story that we talked about so much last week, where Emerson Egrich left wet towels on the bed, his wife was asking him not to do that. And then she found um, that her husband and her sons liked her a whole lot better when she stopped reminding them about the wet towels. And so she did. She stopped reminding them. So that's enabling selfishness. That's not helping people look more like Christ. That's actually doing the opposite. It's enabling people to look less and less like Christ. And when we enable people to treat us with disrespect, then we are enabling them to look less and less like Christ because we're helping them to not have the fruits of spirit evident in their life. So as you are reading books, as you are reading blogs post as you are reading anything ask yourself is the advice here actually bring the kingdom of God to this earth? Or is this is this advice Jesus centered? Or does this advice just sound like it because they're throwing out a lot of Bible verses, but the end result is that sin is enabled. And I see that all the time on Pinterest, you know, you'll see like, like what to do if your husband uses porn. And the only thing it says to do is to trust God and pray. You know what, honey, sometimes the reason you pray is so that God can equip you and give you more power to actually do something about it. Because God wants the kingdom of God present on earth and in your marriage. And that means that we should all be looking more like Christ. If advice doesn't do that, then it is not Jesus-centered. That's it for our To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast this week. My overarching theme, love your spouse and live a big life. I hope I can help point you to the passionate life that God has for us in our podcast next week and, of course, at tolovehonorandvacuum.com, where we will always talk about how to make sure marriage doesn't feel like a to-do list, but instead feels like an exciting adventure.